Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, everyone. This is Adam. For a long time now, everybody has been telling me about HomeBridge and how it's a way to get all those holdout products like Ring and Nest into the HomeKit ecosystem. For me, this always seemed way too complicated and out of my comfort zone. Recently, Richard gave it a try and encouraged me to try it out as well. I finally have, and today we invited special guest and smart home YouTuber Eric Wielander onto the show to talk about all things HomeBridge and Hoobs. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Welcome to The Smart Home Show. I'm joined as usual by my co-host Adam Justice from ConnectSense. Hey, Adam. Hey, good to see you. And for today's discussion, we're joined by Smart Home YouTuber Eric Wielander to help us dive deep into HomeBridge. Eric, we're really glad you're here today. Thanks for having me. Now, it's fair to acknowledge up front before we even talk about anything, that you have more experience with this than either of us. So we're probably going to be leaning on you pretty heavily today. Oh, yeah, sure. Happy, happy to help. But, uh, you know, I will say I'm, uh, there are probably other people out there in the world who have built these plugins and know way more about Homebridge. But uh, I've definitely said a lot on my YouTube channel and What's to stop three guys on the internet from having some informed opinions about something? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, but before we dig into on Homebridge, uh, we always start the show with a question. So uh question will be for Richard to start. Richard, what's the last movie you watched? And then also, what's the last movie you saw in person? Yeah, it's funny because I catch myself all the time saying, oh, I saw this. And then I'm like, actually, I think the right way to put that is that I watched it because I was really just at home doing that. The last movie that I watched was an unsung hero from last fall called Jojo Rabbit. Have you seen this film? I have not, but I'm guessing you're going to tell me based on your Twitter reaction that I should watch it. It is so good. It is such a good movie. It seems like an absolutely crazy concoction and combination of things. It's actually created by the guy who created What We Do in the Shadows. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. That's a an office-like mockumentary of the life inside a house full of vampires. So think of that kind of wackiness and the mind that might put that together applied to a story about Hitler youth. Really bizarre. I highly, highly recommend it. Okay, what I last saw in a theater was, in fact, the last Star Wars film. Okay. So, yeah, it's been a while. I don't really go to the theater that often. Maybe a couple times a year. I go to see Star Wars, Star Trek, a big Disney epic. I would have gone for Milan. 
and usually maybe, uh, well, not maybe, a, a Bond. And usually I'll see Bond films more than once in a theater. All right. How about you? I mean, there's always kids' movies on in my house, but I'll say those don't count. The last movie uh, no, I... Oh, no, the last one. So even if it's embarrassing... <laughs> I know, but I I can't even think of one that we've like sat like I sat down and watched the whole thing of. Uh, the last movie probably I really watched was Knives Out, which I really enjoyed. That was great. And saw in person, I think, was uh, Uncut Gems. I saw that uh, in in the theater uh, with my wife on a a date night, and uh, that's an Adam Sandler movie. Oh, uh, very unconventional Adam Sandler movie. That I would highly recommend. Uh, I thought he should have been up for an Oscar for it, but really interesting. Uh, not a, not a feel good, uh, kind of movie. It's more of an on the edge of your seat for the entire thing, but worth the ride. I needed a drink afterwards, but it wow. was a good one. Interesting. I've never heard of that. Cool. How about you, Eric? Do yeah. you want to get in on this? What's the last movie you saw? Sure. So the last movie I saw was Ford versus Ferrari. Really enjoyed it. Uh, got it on iTunes, and my wife and I watched it here at home. Um, we tend to watch more TV shows and other stuff, but uh, as far as movies go, that was the last one, and really enjoyed it. I've heard good things about that, but I haven't seen it, so I'll add it to the list. Definitely. <laughs> and and I'll say the the one that I'm I'm sad about not being able to see in person is uh, Tenant, uh, the big Nolan uh, movie. That's being released worldwide, except here, or I guess maybe here. But um, that's one that I wish I could see in a theater because I, I always enjoy Christopher Nolan stuff. So yeah, yeah. The more I hear about, the more that I'm looking forward to that. I'm just hoping it helps people learn how to pronounce the word tenant. That would be awesome. <laughs> did I did I pronounce it wrong? No, I don't believe you did. Most people put okay. a second N in it, as if it's the person renting your basement apartment. Different. Yeah, that one looks interesting, so I'm excited about that. But uh, if you want to submit a question for us to open the show, you can send us a question on Twitter using the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard. All right, so we have talked about this a little bit over the last couple of months, actually, as... I kind of turned a corner and went from being a staunch don't use home bridge person to someone who saw the light and came to understand what home bridge could offer me. And so I think that was among the things influencing you, Adam, to consider doing it yourself. And one of the things that I learned is that it was way, way easier than I thought. And it didn't used to be that way. And, you know, Eric, you've done some videos about this where, you know, you, you kind of had to go all command line and maybe set up a pie or have a server already running and know what, how to set up a node server. I mean, there's, there's stuff that makes this a hurdle for many people. For sure. For sure. But it turns out that uh, actually it wasn't that hard. And we're going to dive into how you do it. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about what it is. And so I guess, like, I would describe Homebridge as a an open source project that allows you to pull non-supported devices into the HomeKit ecosystem. Is that a 
as accurate as it can be? Is there more to it or is there is there some nuance that I'm missing? I think that sounds about right. Yeah, to just enabling third-party open source software to be a glue that connects uh, manufacturers that don't officially support HomeKit and, you know, uh, enabling them to appear right alongside your other HomeKit accessories in your smart home. And it basically works by having a server that runs somewhere in your home and that server exposes these different ecosystems by plugins. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but my first question, I just don't understand how. How is this possible when we heard so much about the security that Apple had put into place from the beginning? You had to even have specific hardware when HomeKit first came out. How is this possible? I don't get it. I, I think my like simplest explanation is, you know, in a heist movie. When <laughs> this is already starting out well. <laughs> they record the video of something happening and then they'll like splice in the like the video of the empty, you know, the room with nobody in it. I think that's kind of what how this works from from my understanding is basically like if you went through and you said, you know, what's the garage door open command? And then you record that garage door open command and then, you know, basically echo it back out in the world. That's how they originally did this, just by kind of hacking through to figure out what all the commands were and what they could do to to be able to replicate those in HomeKit. So that's kind of the my layman's way of like how this came about. Okay, well... So your analogy is interesting. Couldn't it be something that Apple at some point just catches, just stops? Yeah. So I, I think Apple is, it's totally within Apple's power to shut down this whole Homebridge movement. But it is interesting where, you know, this, this concept of uncertified accessories working with HomeKit that Apple probably enabled to just make it easier for accessory manufacturers to test upcoming products. It's ended up creating this whole ecosystem of open source integrations that talk to Homebridge and then in turn talk to HomeKit. And then back to the whole thing of the way it works, I think of it a lot like any other bridge you might buy from a manufacturer. So you might buy a Philips Hue bridge or a Lutron Caseta bridge to get one of those ecosystems to communicate with HomeKit. And what HomeBridge is doing is the same thing, but it's using, you know, known web technologies like Node.js and the Node Package Manager to set up a small little server on your local network in your home to do basically the same thing. And they're authenticating with HomeKit via authentication codes. And from what I think it looks like, you know, software authentication via HomeKit. And then that's able to create this connection as if you'd installed, uh, you know, some other kind of bridge for manufacturer as if, let's say, uh, you know, Nest had actually made a bridge for HomeKit. Yeah. So that's the other thing that I don't understand is how they're doing that software code, right? They're giving you an actual HomeKit code that somehow Apple's like, yep, okay. And it even says this is not a verified device in the home app. Like Apple knows that, but we're going to let you use it anyway. I'm just astounded by it. I mean, my thought here is it, 
it's not really hurting anything. And if, if there was something malicious that they could do, they would absolutely end it. And in a lot of ways, it kind of solves a problem for them that, you know, this definitely fits into the tech enthusiast category. You know, your normal homeowner is probably not going to do this. Right. And so it satisfies the need of that enthusiast that wants everything covered. And um, so, you know, if it's not hurting anything, I, I think they kind of leaned in on it. They, you know, they did some other open source stuff a few years ago. And they, you know, they talked about support for, you know, unverified accessories. So, you know, I think it's kind of something that they've blessed. And I'm not super worried that they're going to get rid of it. It it seems like it's something they're okay with it existing. Hmm. That's that's fascinating to me. All right. So let's let's say we think this is okay. It's going to you know, we're going to use it. We're going to give it a try. I guess the question then would be why? Like, why would anyone be interested in doing this? And, and from what I can see, like the the biggest benefit, well, there are probably a lot of benefits. I mean, if you want just one ecosystem for everything, this is a good way of doing that. If you tend to like the home app or other apps built around the HomeKit ecosystem. This lets you use that as a way of controlling everything. From my perspective, and I'm curious what each of you think is the biggest deal about this. From my perspective, like being able to pull in what I think of as the holdout brands, and most specifically, I think of Ring and Nest, and having those ecosystems devices within HomeKit, that to me, I think, is among the biggest benefits of this thing. And sure, there are lots of others that we'll talk about, but man, I, you know, we've been waiting for Ring for how long? We've joked about it for how many years and ultimately kind of given up. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, that's a, that's the whole reason I did this. You know, I had this fractured ecosystem in my house and yeah, I don't have any faith that Ring is going to come on board uh, the HomeKit train anytime soon, even though that's originally what I, you know, I kind of bought my Ring doorbell on that promise. Same for Nest. I don't think they're coming anytime soon. So yeah, truly, if you want everything under one roof, this is certainly a good way to kind of sure up some of those things. And one of the other cool dimensions of that that you're able to do in something like this with an open source project is they're able to play a little bit more fast and loose with the usability of some of the things in HomeKit where certain things will use, let's say, the brightness of a light bulb or just a switch in general to turn on or off things or, or just the brightness of something you know that, that's actually adjusting the volume of something or the brightness will actually be an LED light on a particular accessory or you know ways that then you can hook it up to HomeKit and you know what it is, but it's not exactly what HomeKit thinks it is. And, you know, some of that can also be done with accessories that we're probably not going to have on our list of of things that we think Apple's going to integrate with anytime soon as far as product categories. Uh, Like Shane Watley over on YouTube did a really great video recently about setting up his Roomba with HomeKit and then being able to, you know, with that, like you're saying, Adam, have all of his devices under the HomeKit ecosystem and use automations inside of HomeKit to control things that you'd otherwise not expect to be able to, like 
turning on and off your robotic vacuum. Yeah, and that automation thing, I think, is really powerful here because I would argue that Apple has one of the most robust rules engines around there, and it's fairly approachable given all of the different products that are out there that let you take advantage of that. For sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I started digging in on this, which we'll talk more about later, you know, I literally just went through, I have two folders. I don't know if we've ever talked about it. I have two folders on my phone, one for all my HomeKit stuff and one for everything that's not HomeKit. Ah. Um, and so I literally went through my non-HomeKit smart home folder and started looking stuff up and what was in there. Um so, you know, that was really interesting. And, you know, most of the stuff I would want to pull into the into uh, HomeKit was there. I think one of the other things that's really nice about it is that this potentially eliminates the need for other third-party integration services. Like if you depend on maybe IFTTT to connect ecosystems or some other service like you know me or what have you that would allow you to do that this gets rid of that it handles some of it actually locally but otherwise does that cloud integration for you and that that's pretty powerful for sure so of the different things that are out there the plugins that are out there and the different ecosystems that are out there you know there's some popular ones we talked about ring and nest i would imagine they're probably the most popular among those that have caught my attention, I've seen a lot of people using the Apple TV plugin that gives you way more control over that in HomeKit than you normally have. Because you might think, well, why do I need that? I already have Apple TV showing up in HomeKit. But pretty much all you can do is turn it on and off, and then you get the panel that lets you can that this lets you do much more. You also, I've I've seen stuff for MyQ. In fact, I've tried the MyQ thing. It it's not rock solid, but it's pretty good, and I'm happy about that. And my favorite, I think, is the one for Pico remotes, because I'm pretty sure most people who listen to me know that I love Pico remotes, and I hate that Lutron does not expose them to HomeKit. So with a Caseta Bridge Pro, this solves that problem finally! And you don't need to do my hacky little proxy trick. Yeah. So Richard's happy. That's what made you a HomeBridge customer. I, I am happy, but now I worry because I worry, is is this safe? Like, basically, I'm entrusting a whole bunch of software from people I don't know to run full-time on a computer in my home on my network, and it has access to all of my device ecosystems is that safe i think it is i mean it, you know you're it depends you know safe is a relative question i think if you're really concerned about security in your home with you know your home network you might not want to put homebridge on it but that's a very small minority of people i think who use homekit and it's built homebridge is built on top of a lot of known web technologies like node.js which is you know i run my website on a package that runs on top of node.js and a lot of other websites run on node.js it's a, it's a growing 
popular web platform. And so they're essentially using these known open source technologies and then building on top of them with open source stuff to, to make this small server on your local network. So again, you're dealing with something that's only accessible inside your local network. If someone has access to your local network in some other way, there are probably other things they're going to do to your home that are more damaging than, you know, messing with Homebridge. And, you know, from what I can see, I don't, I'm not a leading security expert, but I don't think there are a lot of known ways that they could, you know, compromise Homebridge externally and get into your home network that way. So I think, you know, we're also, as I mentioned, dealing with open source code, which theoretically anybody out there can go and read. And there's quite a number of people out there who already use Homebridge and a lot of these plugins. So I think you're especially safe if you're looking at Homebridge as a platform and then the bigger name plugins that are often, you know, if you're, we'll talk about details later, but if they're like Homebridge certified or Hoop certified, you know, other people have set them up. A lot of people are using them. I think it's a pretty safe bet to go ahead and install these because you're definitely not the first person to install them and find out the, the random bugs and edge cases. Yeah, I think for me, that made a lot of difference. And uh, we can get into that more later. But yeah, the the certified and more kind of blessed plugins, which, you know, the ring one is the nest one is, you know, all the ones that are the most popular um, have been pretty thoroughly vetted. And you've got a lot of eyes on that code that if, if somebody was doing something malicious, uh, you know, people would know about it and catch it and uh, shame them and you know, <laughs> report it, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, we hope. I mean, that. I guess it's not really significantly different from the old Wild West days when we downloaded software from random websites and, hey, what's this bat file? What's this exe? Okay, I'll just run it. Sure, why not? Like, I actually had to do that to do a firmware downgrade on a device a few months ago and it made me so nervous <laughs> because I just had to trust that it wasn't going to do anything malicious. But, you know, I guess people have different comfort levels. It's about the risk that you're willing to take on there. All right. Well, we are going to talk a little bit in more detail about how you do this and, and what it takes to set it all up. All right. But yeah, first, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we return, we'll get into that. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about setting up Homebridge. And I can speak to at least how I did it, which uh, Richard thinks I cheated. Totally cheated. No, you didn't. <laughs> but I, I took the easy route. And that, and that actually, for me, you know, I, I know enough technical stuff to be a little bit dangerous. You know, I had some programming courses in college, but I'm not a, you know, I'm not a terminal guy. I'm not a developer by day. You know, the, for me, the prospect of, you know, running this on a, a machine in the house or even getting a Raspberry Pi and putting it on there uh, was a little much for me. So, there's a couple different options for this, uh, some of which I just covered. You could you could run Homebridge on any server you have in the house. Uh, this can be something that's running all the time. I've seen people, I know the ATP guys, they run it on their um, their Synologies. Uh, 
Yes, they're Synologies. Yep, Thank you. That's where mine is. Others that can run it just on a Pi. But w- basically, the important thing is it's something that's always running and always connected to the network. So a work laptop or something like that wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be a good candidate here. And you do need something that can support Node.js and relatively recent versions. But again, that's a very broad list of pieces of hardware. Right. right. So if you're doing this manually, would you have to install some Node.js stuff? On top of it first? I think so. Yeah. It really yeah. depends on what manual means, right? Exactly. Like if, if you have if if you have a Mac and you decided that, oh, I, I want to set up my Mac, then yeah, you're going to have to install some server software and get all that running. But if you have, for example, a Synology, which is how I installed mine, the images are out there that include everything you need to just run in a container on your Synology. So you're, you're basically just grabbing the Docker container and following the, the instructions to install that. And it's fairly straightforward. Um, you know, it's worth mentioning that my first version I installed on a Pi. And I, I've always been one of these people that said, oh, you know, if, if I have to set up a Raspberry Pi to make this work, it's just too much trouble. I'm not, I can't be bothered with it. But what made that easy for me was the next option that we're going to talk about. Which is something called HOOBS. So uh, HOOBS stands for Homebridge Out-of-the-Box Server. Yes? Homebridge Out-of-Box System, I think... But it's the same idea. So, yeah, basically what what these guys did was they made, you know, kind of home bridge on easy mode. So you you didn't have to worry about, you know, installing all those pieces and you could do it in a in a simpler way. And basically, there's two ways to do maybe three ways to do hoops. You could, you know, put it on a pie yourself uh, or something like that via an image they have to download and then flash it on on your pi they also sell a micro sd card which you can just you know pop into your pi or you can take the cheating method like i did (laughs) and just buy the box from them which the box is literally just a pi in a fancy piece of plastic that says hoops that says hoops and you know walks you through it so um definitely a much simpler way to do it. And there are different costs associated with all of those, right? Like I was able to get the image download for just seven bucks. I think it's $20 if you want them to ship you a micro SD card, or if you're buying the box, you're paying for the pie and the customization and something else. Cause that, is, that isn't entirely cheap. Yeah. I don't remember what the box costs. $170. Ouch. It's a little steeper, but it's easier. So yeah, I, I will say, I mean, I first got into Homebridge last year when I found out about the Nest integration and I have a lot of Nest products and I made a video about that on my channel at the time of setting up the Homebridge Nest integration on a Raspberry Pi and just doing the installation myself. And uh, a little bit earlier this year, Hoobs reached out to me and sent me one of their boxes to check out. And I really enjoy it. And, you know, I talked about this in my video when initially about hoops. It's just, it's, um, you know, even if you do have the ability to set one up yourself, this is kind of just paying to take that problem away. 
and someone else is taking care of that problem. It saves you time. Um, it costs you a little bit more money, but again, you know, it's, it's not something, it's not a part of the setup process that you have to deal with and debug any kinds of edge cases you might have with getting, you know, the proper versions of any of these plugins to match or whatever else. Right. Now, Eric, you've also talked about another box that's specifically designed to take advantage of Google Nest devices. Yes. So, and and this gets a little bit more into my uh, story around Homebridge myself, but I earlier this year also purchased myself a Starling Home Hub. And I would say at this point, you know, when I set up Homebridge Nest last year, the Starling Home Hub did not exist. So uh, Homebridge was pretty much the way to go to get Nest to talk to HomeKit. Since then, it's a kind of a like Hoob's a productized version of. I think they're still running on Homebridge, it, you know, but there's a lot of specific custom Nest and Google integrations there on the Starling Home Hub to specifically connect the Nest ecosystem with Apple HomeKit. And I think even if you're thinking about a variety of different plugins, my advice would be if you're, if you're thinking about integrating Nest and HomeKit, get the Starling Home Hub. Uh, and there, there are two main reasons for that. One is it takes care of the ever evolving issues with authentication with Google and or Nest. And, you know, as you might know, uh, you know, for example, recently I just got an email from the Starling, uh, Home Hub you know, company saying I needed to re-log into my bridge because of some API they were upgrading with authentication. Very easy. I just went to the hub of my local network, re-logged into it, and it was all good to go. Where if I was doing some of the home bridge, I might have to, you know, refresh some kind of a authentication key or do something else with OAuth or some other authentication method to make sure all of that lined up. Um, the other thing that Starling does a really great job of is dealing with video feeds from cameras. Um, I never ended up getting the video feeds to work successfully with the Homebridge Nest plugin on my Raspberry Pi with the Starling Home Hub, it just takes care of that out of the box for you. So I would say then specifically for Nest, yes, you're still using a variant of Homebridge, but it's really tailored experience just for that problem, which is a big problem to solve for a lot of people. Now, this is you, you keep on talking about how this is for Google Nest. Does it support anything beyond that, or is it really just for Google Nest? Just Google Nest. Okay. So again, you're looking at another, you know, hundred-ish dollar box to add to your network, which I know, you know, people don't love having more things to plug into their home router uh, for their <laughs> smart home. But trust me, in this case, if you do still have a bunch of Nest products you want to integrate with HomeKit and a bunch of HomeBridge other, you know, stuff, let's say Ring or or other uh, integrations like Sonos, keep them both for their own things. It'll make your life better. So it's interesting because this is one where I've worried and I have specifically not recommended this box. Uh, actually, let me say that differently. I have recommended not getting this box on my show Home On for general DIYers because I think there are, there are two concerns here in terms of this could get turned off someday and you've invested money in hardware. It's not just Apple's interest here. It's also Google's interests that I'm concerned about. And, and Google doesn't really seem to care at all about random third party hobbyist developers. 
Well, but at the same time, we did see Google and Apple and a number of other smart home companies come together with this new connected home alliance and promise that they do want their products to all talk to each other in the future. So, you know, this does align with the long-term intentions, at least publicly displayed by Google and Apple. And that's what makes me feel like it's a safe bet. But again, it is a risk you're going to have to calculate with the use of your own money of, you know, do I want to be spending this between $100 and $200 on a box that might stop working in a year, six months, three years. We yeah. don't know. Who knows? Right. Yeah. When uh, Eric and I were hanging out in the before times, he actually showed me this and showed me uh, his Nest Hello running on on Starling Home Hub. And that was really impressive to me. So I think that's something that would be a lot harder on HomeBridge. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my experience of integrating Nest in, in a little bit here. But sounds like this is kind of the easy mode and the easy way to do Nest stuff so that if you're like heavily in that ecosystem, especially on the video side, it, it's really the way to go. Whereas you'd have to jump through a number of hoops to get all that stuff working in, in Homebridge. Interesting. Interesting. Now, I, I guess one of the things that I wonder is, you know, one of the reasons people liked Hoobs over Homebridge was because Hoops had an actual user interface that was usable before Homebridge did. And so that made Homebridge even more approachable for people certainly like me and and maybe like Adam who are like, command line? Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Is that the same with Starling? Oh, yeah. So Starling has a full, beautiful uh, website you can go to as well on your local network and log in in a very similar way to Hoobs. And, you know, we should mention, I think, as you kind of referred to, Richard, that Homebridge does have a user interface now for controlling your accessories. But I would still say, given the various ways you might want to set up Homebridge from scratch, I don't think you should count on being able to use that UI all the time, every time to fix all your problems with just a home bridge from scratch setup. Whereas Hoobs, it seems like they've really tailored the whole experience to their user interface. So mm-hmm. while you can see the command line activity and get a, get an idea of what's going on there, and some accessories might be giving you useful information on that, you really don't need to do anything beyond reading it. You know, you don't need to know any of the commands or enter it or, or be, you know, to, to delve too much in to uh, the command line to make Hoobs work. Right. Yep. Okay. Okay. So Hoobs, as we kind of said, runs in a in a browser and you download these plugins for certain devices that you want to use. For some of these, they are Hoobs certified. Do we really know what Hoobs certified means other than, you know, they've kind of tested it and made sure it works? <laughs> I, I think... There are certain requirements. I know there are on Homebridge. So I'm assuming it has a self-installer, that it includes an interface for managing the options, that it is going to automatically take care of any config files or JSON files that need to be set up. You don't have to do that yourself. Now, I say that. But I seem to remember that when I set up Nest, I still had to do some terminal stuff to be able to get a token to be able to use my Nest stuff properly. So there, you know, this, <laughs> the, 
there is still some getting your hands dirty here, even with the certified plugins, for sure. Yeah, I that was my experience as well. And, you know, it seems like some of the certified stuff had better instructions than others. Some, you know, very clearly walk you through. The ring one is very good and has very clear instructions and walks you through what you need to do. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're not entering commands and it's telling you where to get all the information it needs in order to run this in the background. Right. The one thing, though, to think about, too, is that not every accessory manufacturer requires authentication tokens or anything where it's talking out to the web to, you know, a web service like with Nest or or others. Uh, TP-Link is a popular smart home brand, and I have a bunch of their smart plugs, and integrating those with Homebridge, it just talks on the local network. It doesn't need access to your account to do that. And there are some others like that. For example, I just did a video on my channel about the Sonos Zone Player plugin. And the authentication there was very easy too. I didn't have to go, you know, for both of those, I didn't have to enter any OAuth tokens or or anything like that. It was just kind of configure and go. And with Hoobs, I mean, you still have to configure some of the values that you would configure in the config.json. It's just Hoobs, especially with the Hoobs certified plugins, gives you a nice web form where you can, you know, use a drop down and text fields and stuff. So you're, you're not having to make sure, ah, oh, did I forget a comma in my JSON and that's why it failed or something like that. Right. Yeah. It, it gives you all the fields you, you need to set up and, uh, just makes it a little bit easier to know what pieces of information you need to put in there for this thing to work. So. Yeah, I would say sometimes. Like, so, I mean, th- these are all built by the developers, first of all. So the developers are trying to create an interface for something that is really just building a JSON file, building config information into a text file. And I might argue that some of the developers, just like the documentation, some of it is really good, some of it is not. I would say that some of the developers are better at creating a user interface for their config options than others. Yeah. And I think, like we said, some of it, you got to get in the weeds and get your hands dirty. You know, I think particularly uh, since we mentioned Nest, that one was a little bit harder to dig into. You know, I had to go into Chrome and log into Nest and find some values in developer mode. So... It's definitely not for the, you know, those that don't know their way around a computer. I forgot about the Chrome thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, and, and that, that Nest plugin took care of, you know, in my house, I have Nest smoke detectors. I also have a Nest camera in my garage that was not included in that plugin. So, uh, kind of to what Eric said, it sounds like the Nest video stuff can be more challenging. Whereas the just the smoke detectors, that one was pretty easy to get in the mix. So both Hoobs and Homebridge offer a configuration experience that is somewhat guided. You you have this concept of certified in both. Let's be really clear about certified. Certified does not mean that anybody has looked at it and said, yep, this is not going to do anything bad to your computer. That is not 
one of the things that's on that list. <laughs> so it, it, it really just means that the developer has met certain criteria to be able to have this seamlessly fit in the environment. But I, I do, you know, I, I do worry again as we see that, okay, so we're getting tokens and we're logging in and look at that config JSON file, which both environments expose and allow you to manually edit if you want to do that. Hey, there's my username and password in clear text in that file. Is that bad? I've been taught to believe that that's bad. And so again, I worry about security and I worry about all this stuff in plain text. And I worry about, you know, I, I don't even know, like my home kit, my home bridge server is on my home network on my Synology, which is not exposed outside at all. I have nothing available outside my home network through the Synology. But, no, that's not true. I have Plex accessible through outside my network through the Synology. But I wonder, okay, do, do I need to change away from admin admin as my login? I probably should. Because I've yes. been taught that you should do that. But then I'm like, but it's in my house. So does it matter? And I think, I, I guess the, these are the questions that if I didn't know any better, and I feel like I do, I'd be asking. So there's a couple things to consider here. One is when you're getting an OAuth token or some other kind of tokenized or like unique way to authenticate with the service, unique way to, to quote unquote log in with a web service, Usually, you know, that's not going to be a password in plain text. And I think that should be avoided at all costs. The only exception maybe is one of these like one time passwords that's specific to Homebridge and you know about it specific to Homebridge or things, but you generally don't want, you know, passwords that you use to sign in floating around some of these config files, even if it's just on your local network. The other thing to consider, too, is something that I think a lot of developers maybe listening to the show probably do with open source projects they might look at for work or anything else, is uh, if you go, you know, just type in the name of the plugin onto Google and you'll probably find links to the GitHub page. You might find links to the Node Package Manager page about these packages. You might find links to Hoobs has a directory that's public on their website that also lists some of these. And, you know, one of the things like on GitHub, you can see how many people have starred the repo, uh, you know, or or are watching updates to the re repository. Sorry, repo meaning repository, just meaning like where the code is stored. And so, but if, you know, you don't have to be a developer to, to notice, oh, look, there are over a thousand people watching this particular plugin or or sometimes many more than a thousand. And, and that can give you an idea of, yeah, this is a bigger plugin. Or if you only see like five people listed as stars and 10 people who have installed or who are watching the plugin for updates, that, that can kind of be a little more concerning maybe of that you might want to look elsewhere to get your needs met. You're concerning me about my Pico solution, but I mean, that's <laughs> right. I mean, it, and so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't personally run that integration, but it's it's totally up to you. Yeah, I think for me, I only went with ones that were Hoob certified, and that gave me a little bit more faith that those were things that you know had been pretty well vetted. Right, and just to clarify, um, the answer is yes. Change your admin admin username password to something else. This is your homework before this show goes up. <laughs> it will have been changed. <laughs> 
So uh, let's dig into a little bit of, you know, what what we set up and, and what we're using this for. I'll go first. My first one, why I bought this, why I even bothered to do this was Ring. I originally bought a Ring doorbell after seeing them at an Apple event and someone from Ring telling me we're going to have HomeKit soon. And so I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll buy this then. And, and slowly I've added more and more ring stuff to my home. And now I had this whole island of, of ring island, uh, with nothing that talked to HomeKit. <laughs> so for me, this was huge because in adding the ring plugin, not only did I get my doorbell, I also got my, uh, my backyard floodlight cam. I also have the Ring security system, so I got all my Ring security system into HomeKit, and my new purchased, you, which those who heard the last episode won't be surprised, my Ring Pathlight, solar Pathlights that I just bought are, are now in the mix, too. So, you know, in that one plugin, I added whatever, I'll, probably close to 15, 20 devices to my HomeKit setup. That's huge. It is, it is huge. And I, I think the thing that's, uh, that really astounded me with the ring plugin is that not only does it give you access to control the lights and see the cameras. And by the way, with ring, I don't know what your experience is. I have no problem. With access to the cameras, they just pop up as if they're HomeKit cameras. They're refreshed every sec, every ten seconds. I think it's set to by default. So none of the Nest weirdness that you were talking about there, Eric, on the Ring side. But it also exposes stuff like your current charge level or battery level in the device, and you could even use those if you wanted to for different automations. It exposes light groups. So you can potentially trigger entire groups or do stuff based off of groups. It, I'm really blown away by the granularity of information that that exposes and lets you use in HomeKit in a way that to be completely blunt is so much easier than the mess that has like become the ring app as it's evolved over the years. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Another one for me that I did immediately. So almost every other door in my house, I have a smart device on. So we've got my cue for the garage door. I've got a smart door lock that's in HomeKit. So I, we have a back door that leads to our patio, which has a ring door sensor on it. And that was kind of the only major entrance to our house that I don't get notifications on. So all I had to do was go in, door sensor, add notifications. And now I get when that patio door is open and closed, I know about it. So, you know, now I have my full home door, you know, notification situation going on and uh, I'm a happy man. So... Yeah, I was really happy with uh, everything in the ring ring arena there. So with all of your ring devices, here's a question for you. And this is one of my pet peeves with home, not with home bridge. But how long did it take you to 
take out all of the things that you didn't want automatically added to your favorites and to your home status, which is the default configuration for any new device in the home app. Still underway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, so by default, the stuff all gets en- entered to your default room in, in HomeKit, or at least that was my experience. Yep. And so I'm just was sorting through my, my default room putting places where they belonged and it looks like you're sitting in your default room right now aren't you (laughs) exactly no i have a room for this office yeah and i I was excited about everything that was in there so i would say i'm still still working on it still trying to imagine the possibilities what i want to automate off of this what i want to do with all this um you know step one was just getting it in there the other one I talked about already was Nest. I added all my Nest smoke detectors in there, which exposes, uh, I believe, a temperature sensor, a motion sensor. Uh, I don't know if the light is controllable, but, you know, with all these devices where they have other things they can do, you get access to those as well. So that's something I want to experiment with. And hey, so now you don't have to wait for Google to get their act together to once again let you link an event that's triggered from your smoke detector to do something like turn on lights or turn off the fuel-based heat system. Right. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, it can really freak out my children now when the smoke detectors go off. I'll make all the lights flash. Well, maybe not so much flash as come on full red so that it's easy to see in a smoky environment. Yeah, true. I also did the the previously mentioned uh, Roomba integration. Uh, I haven't played around with that too much, but that was uh, that was in the smart home folder of shame and uh, is now uh, HomeKitized. <laughs> the other one that I did not, I need to spend some time troubleshooting. I was excited to see one of the most popular plugins was for the Harmony Hub. I have a Harmony remote. We use the Harmony Hub and remote extensively. I had bought a HomeKit TV a while back. And one of the things I was like, you know, what am I going to do with this? Now that I have access to my Harmony Hub in here, now now we're talking. And I, I hadn't even <laughs> seen what you talked about, the, the Apple TV one. There could be some interesting stuff here. But my Harmony Hub was in there. I had it working. And now it's gone. It's vanished from my from my default room hmm. and I don't know where it's gone. Hmm. So I need to find it, figure it out and, and try to sort that one out. So I might have to delete that plugin and start from scratch. One tip. Now I'm on the beta, but I think this is in iOS 13 as well. If you go under, cause Homebridge appears to HomeKit, and this is true with Hoobs as well and Starlink. They appear to HomeKit as a hub, just like any other hub you might buy from an official manufacturer. And so you can go under your hubs in the home settings and then from there see your connected accessories for that hub. And that might just help you find because I'm, I'm right there with you in terms of if you have a lot of rooms and a lot of accessories and it can get things, you know, it, it might have just completely dropped off or some other issue that you know technically but that's just a a handy place if you listener are out there uh trying to figure out where on earth did uh homebridge decide to put this accessory yeah that that's actually a really good tip because i oftentimes i 
feel like I've lost stuff in the home app if you don't know where it is. It's not like you can just say, show me all devices. That view doesn't really exist. So that's a really good tip. The, another thing you can do is check out your, the logging to see if there's anything going on on your Hoobs server. The Hoobs logging, which is really just exposing the Homebridge logging, is is really helpful. You can usually identify if one of your plugins couldn't find a device or had trouble starting. It's a very, it's a verbose log, which is helpful for this kind of thing. And frankly, I think that's the kind of logging that many hardcore smart home people like us crave. So Richard, what, what all did you connect in? So I mentioned Picos, right? I mean, you know, that was, that was the thing I was most excited about. Do you like Picos, Richard? I love Pico remotes. And so one of the things that I wanted to do, like already, I, it's great that it puts it in home, home kit and that I can control it from the home app. But that's not the big win for me. The big win is the integration and control of things that I previously either could not do or kludged together with other systems. So Picos now can be used to control anything. It's like the old days when we had a Staples Connect hub and you could actually program a Pico to be useful. So now you can have any button on a Pico have up to three functions, press, double press, or long press. You have a standard five-button Pico. That's 15 things you can do with a Pico. You can have the actions that are logical, and then you can have the secret options that only you know about and the rest of your family has no idea are there. So I think this is incredibly powerful, and one of my first applications for it was to hook it up to my Bond Bridge for shade control. Now, here's the thing that I think is really intriguing here. The Bond Bridge plugin did not yet support shades. And I reached out to the developer. I went to, by the way, I have never in my life had a Bitbucket account. I created a Bitbucket account so that I could start interacting with developers and getting builds and stuff like that just for all of this. And I said, Hey, uh, it looks like somebody has experimented with this in a branch. Is that something that you'd consider bringing into the release? And he's like, Oh yeah, sure. And within two days, the bond bridge supported shades. So I now have Pico remotes that can control shades and not have to rely on well, whatever, you know, the wonky thing that came with the shades themselves. So I'm very excited about that. Similarly, there's a plugin for Instion. Now, my luck with this plugin has not been so good yet. It's built by the same developer who created the plugin for smart things for Instion. And that's been pretty solid, but this it seems to be hit or miss with me. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. I actually want to reach out and find out more about to see if uh, I'm doing something wrong or if I'm missing something. But 
I have Insteon throughout my house. And if I could tie other things into Insteon, if I could have an Insteon keypad, for example, control not just uh, a light coming on that's maybe a smart bulb, but also the color of that lighting, that's incredibly powerful. So I'm, I'm hoping to get that working at some point. I mentioned that I started with hoops because it was crazy easy to download the image, flash it onto an SD card. They even direct you to flashing software that does it for you. I mean, that just made that process so simple. I had never set up a Pi before in my life, and I did for that. But now that I have Homebridge running, I am taking stuff off of hoops. You can have Homebridge and hoops running in the same home, and all the stuff from the plugins across them will just all show up together in HomeKit. But I just want to get on one ecosystem. So I'm moving everything to Homebridge and I'm comfortable in the Homebridge system. I don't feel like I need whatever, you know, I, I don't mean to say this demeaningly, but I don't need the crutch that I feel like Hoobs would give me. I'm good just working in Homebridge now. The other thing, and I think this is the biggest thing for me is you know, I mentioned that some people use third-party systems to hobble together their incompatible ecosystems. For that, I used to use Stringify. Well, Stringify went away. I don't really use IFTTT because it's not powerful enough today for what I wanted to do. So I was basically using smart things with some smart apps from developers as the glue to pull all my things together. That's where automations were that would cross-platform. And I'm slowly moving all of that now to HomeKit because it's so much more powerful. It's easier to manage and maintain. The only problem is that, man, once you get a bunch of automations in HomeKit, that's just a mess to maintain. But overall, and by a mess, I mean, it's just an unorganized list of all these different automations. Generally, HomeKit doesn't do a good job of allowing you to organize or manage those. And by generally, I mean, there is no way to organize or manage those. Sounds like an opportunity for somebody to make another app to better organize and manage. Those. Yeah, yeah, it does. Eric, how about you? What have how how have you adopted? Is this something that actually you're using daily, or is this just stuff that you play with and test? I'd say it's it's a little closer to the playing with and test side of things. But one thing to just mention back to the Pico remotes that I know you just love so much, Richard. An accessory that I love so much, probably equally as much, is the Philips Hue dimmer switch. Yes. So if you're thinking this sounds cool to have a quick and easy remote for HomeKit stuff, and but you're not quite interested maybe in setting up HomeBridge or something like that, if you have a Philips Hue hub in your HomeKit home, you can buy a Philips Hue dimmer switch. Often, you know, they can uh, re- uh, sell on Amazon for like $20, 25 ish dollars. 
And that is then can be programmed in HomeKit instead of the Philips Hue app. And so you can link any of those buttons to any number of HomeKit scenes. And so they can control accessories that are not Philips Hue related. Uh, this is specific to their dimmer switch. It's not true with the Aurora dimmer or some other controls they make. Which is a crime because that would be amazing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, anyways, just wanted to call that out. I love the Philips Hue dimmer switch. I have a bunch of them over my house for that exact reason. As far as Homebridge, though, uh, you know, initially I was led into Homebridge to get Homebridge Nest working. And that's really nice to just be able to link up my Nest thermostat to HomeKit-based automations if I want to, as well as, uh, you know, I integrated my TP-Link smart plugs. That was more, I'd already set up Homebridge, and it was so easy. It's a super easy plugin to add. There's, like, basically no configuration, and it just automatically picks up your plugs that you have in the house. And so that was a great plugin just, you know... In one way, it's probably, depending on your how you value time and money, it's like you could probably just go buy some new HomeKit-compatible smart plugs for not much money relative to everything, it, depending on how many smart plugs you're replacing. I had quite a number of them, and I just wanted the fun journey of playing with HomeBridge to, to set up that integration. Yeah, I mean, the TP-Link uh, integration is great. I don't have the HomeBridge Nest integration anymore on my network. I use the Starling Home Hub for talking to Nest now. Uh, so that's, you know, you, you won't only have one or the other. And then the HomeBridge ZP plugin or Zone Player for Sonos, this one is a pretty cool one, especially if you have any of the older Sonos speakers. So I have a pair of uh, stereo pair of HomePods in my living room. And then in my dining room, I have uh, one of the Sonos, I think it's the Play 5s or something that's, that is AirPlay 2 compatible. And I love telling the pair of HomePods to play music in the living room and the dining room. And it'll just do that pair for me and play via Apple Music, whatever I ask it to. And that works out really nicely but I don't have that in every room. And, uh, you know, I happen to have a, an older Sonos Play 1 in the kitchen, which is not AirPlay 2 compatible. And so it's nice to have this HomeBridge integration where uh, you just expose it to HomeKit as a switch, and then you can just tap on that switch in the kitchen and it will resume or stop whatever's currently playing on that Sonos Play 1. So in our particular case, there's a uh, Apple Music um like algorithmically generated quote unquote radio station, you know, where they'll just play series of songs that match right. a particular genre. Um, so we can just, you know, it, it's, it's like turning on a tap of water, but it's turning on music. And, and so we can just tap that button and then it will play that particular music station on Apple Music. And it could be any other Sonos service. It's really, it just resumes whatever was last playing on that Sonos speaker. So that could be nice if you want to, you know, be tying more into some other music service that maybe isn't as HomeKit friendly. And, and, and yeah, so so I, I think the, those are really the, the the big ones for me that I view, and we can talk about this a little bit more later, I view Homebridge as and Hoobs as a fun toy and project to fiddle with and think about new ways to automate and try new things that I don't necessarily rely on day in and day out. So, you know, I mean, and, and I might, what I mean by that is there, there are certain automations that I will use on a regular basis with this, but if they stopped working, Nah, I'll fix it this weekend. You know, it's not like a, an emergency of the plumbing and the sink is broken level of emergency in the house, you know. Yeah, I don't know that I don't know that I would want to have, you know, 
major important things, you know, tied to this. It, 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 I agree with what you said. It like, it feels like if it's, if it can give you a nice to have great, but it, it shouldn't be mission critical type stuff. Exactly. So overall, do we feel like we can, can rely on it? You know, it's, it seems pretty stable. You know, there's a very vibrant community and, and lots of support. What do you think, Richard? Well, here I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to move all my smart home, my smart things stuff over to it. And you're busy saying, well, I wouldn't put anything mission critical on it. So now I'm wondering, do I do that? And I, I don't know the answer overall. Like I figured that, and this is one of the really nice things about smart things, very much like in, uh, in, in the home app, you can disable an automation in smart things, just like you can with HomeKit. So I wasn't deleting my automations in smart things. I was simply disabling them and then recreating similar things over in home. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I am going to move a bunch of stuff to it. I'll tell you though, like if, if I can get the Instian thing working reliably, Man, it would be really hard for me to hold back from going just gung-ho on this. And the risk there is if at some point in time they end up turning it off, uh, yeah, I, 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 I could probably live with it, but I'd hear about it. Oh man, would I hear about it? Yeah, in, in terms of that, and, and, you know, we, we had on here, like, you know, what's, what's the longevity of this? You know, I think a lot of these authentication methods, you know, that they're using are the primary authentication methods that Google's using to talk to Nest, that Ring's using to talk to its own apps. So for them to just all of a sudden break those plugins would require major changes upon their apps. So really the the person who kind of holds the most power here would be for Apple to do something that would make this work, not, you know, stop working all of a sudden. This has existed for a number of years now. It's growing in popularity. I would think they would piss off a lot of people if if they did that. And uh, you know, I think there would have to be a pretty good reason for them to need to do that security wise. Yeah, I, I mean, I worry about Google because they are so big on security and privacy, yada, yada, yada. You know, smaller companies, I think they're glad this exists. You know, when I spoke with the CEO of Alibra, the makers of the Bond Bridge, they're like, oh, yeah, we've worked with a number of integrators that have helped their customers use the Bond Bridge with with Homebridge because they wanted to get it into their home ecosystem that worked with HomeKit as well as whatever their professional system was. So I think, you know, different companies are going to look at this differently. For sure. How about you, Eric? Do you, do you think this is something that will has longevity? Oh, and by the way, um, I, I have a, a quote from you from one of your YouTube videos <laughs> where you, you basically call this, um, a, you know, a, a giant hack. 
So yes. is that any indication of where your head is here? A little bit. So, you know, I, I don't think I've really mentioned this, but, you know, YouTube and talking about smart home stuff isn't how I pay my bills. I work on iPhone and iPad apps uh, for a company. And over the years in doing that, I've heard plenty of developers call, th- oh, you know, this old code base is just a pile of hacks and, you know, just kind of really derogatory talking about whatever code it was that is just a, a bunch of junk. And, you know, I, I, I'm not particularly saying that. But um, what I am saying, I think, if we take a step back and think about the spectrum of smart home product needs is how I like to think of it. And, you know, on one end of the spectrum, there's the stuff you buy for your smart home that's completely a utility item. You just need this to work all the time. And it's really essential. Like, for example, I think it was in your last episode, uh, Adam, you were talking about in your smart home, you have the motion sensors in your closet that when you open them, the lights turn on. That's a really great automation. I have that set up with a variety of different places in my home as well. And that's the kind of thing where you don't want to be stuck in the dark in your closet. Or when I cut on the lights in my garage, if I ask Siri to turn on the lights in my garage and my TP-Link smart plug controls the, the workbench light in the garage, I want that to turn on right alongside the lights, the, the Wemo switch I have on the wall. And if that kind of stuff doesn't work, that's a bigger problem. But on the other end, you have things that are more of a toy and, and as Adam, you said earlier, nice to haves. Things where the journey of installing the product, setting it up and creating this cool new automation that you can show off to your friends, that's all part of the value of the product, uh, you know, or, or value of the integration. You know, like mm-hmm. if you figure out a way to get your HomePod to announce who's at the front door or you figure out integration like I did with my Sonos S1 or or play one, sorry, or, you know, a robot vacuum or whatever, those kind of automations where it's like, eh, broke, I'll get to it this weekend, I'll play and fiddle with the integration. You know, I think, um, you know, and, and different products for different people, and this could be, you know, off the shelf products or open source kind of configure yourself things, different products can fall in different places for different people. But I think in general, HomeBridge and Hoobs and Starling Home Hub, all of these should fall a lot closer to the toy side for everybody than the essential utility side of that spectrum. And that's not necessarily, you know, I'm not saying that that's because of like unreliable code or these developers are terrible and haven't written good code that's that's reliable. Uh, you know, they're, they're connecting uh, a lot of difficult things that are that are unofficially talking to each other. You know, this is not officially supported by all of these companies. And so just by doing that, there's a lot of different moving pieces that can inherently cause some, um, you know, potential for things to go wrong. And I think you shouldn't get into this without thinking about how these automations will need maintenance over time. And, and consider it a fun toy and a fun journey of setting it up rather than, okay, I'm just going to do this on Saturday and I'm not going to touch it for four years and it's just going to work. Yeah. And I think that that brings up a, a point in my head too, that like, I think you, you need to be prepared to, you know, you're going to have to reboot the box from time to time. You might yes. have to reauthor it. it. It's something that you need to be, you need to know what you're signing up for. And, uh, I remember a friend of the show, Robert Spivak, who's an integrator say he would never put this in a customer's home, you know, to run automations for somebody, you know, and things like that. And I think to me that speaks to like, 
yes, it's reliable if you're there to maintain it and and kind of take care of it, but it's not something a professional would install in a customer's house and, you know, know that they could rely upon it, you know, day in and day out. So, you know, you're setting yourself up to maintain this a bit and, you know, you're going to get some some cool advantages from it and, you know, it it will uh it will bring you joy when it works and uh might add some frustration when it doesn't and you know kind of is what it is yeah I, yeah i i can see that it's funny because i was such the holdout i i didn't see this as a viable option and i'm almost of the mindset now where well i bought into it i should dive into it one risk that I do want to call out back to the whole, are companies going to continue to support this unofficially or, or at least, you know, not do anything to stop Homebridge? I do think the one potential risk here is that Apple decides for one reason or another that uncertified home accessories should be only behind a developer account so that you have to have like an Apple developer account, which is, you know, one of those things you sign up with Apple. You can just be a single person, but you have to pay them a hundred dollars a year. And then you get access to betas and other stuff like that. You know, I could maybe see them down the road requiring that in order to do this, but I still think that's unlikely. I think it's one of those two where if there's a will, there's a way. And the, uh, the tech community is always going to find, you know, the next <laughs> way around. So it means you got to get a developer account in order to get it working they'll they'll figure out a way to get that you know working for people so yeah and and while it's working and it's here you know i would say it's uh something fun to play with and uh can help uh unite all of you know one device to unite all your home stuff uh, uh, under home kit so pretty fun to see all those things uh come into place all right. So I think that's all on Homebridge today. We don't have a listener question for today, but if you have a smart home question, you can send it our way with the hashtag Ask Smart Home Show, and we'll pick one for the next episode. Eric, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us today and helping to make us smarter about how this stuff works. And I don't know, maybe give me a little bit of perspective <laughs> oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. So where can folks find what you do? And uh, you mentioned you have a YouTube channel. And where are you out on the ether? Sure. So youtube.com slash Eric Wielander. You can go there and it's probably linked in the show notes. Uh, check out my videos. I actually, as this podcast published, just published a video on uh, my Sonos integration with Homebridge. So, you know, just all the details in that and the different config options. And then you can also just check out my website, uh, ericwielander.com. If you're curious about the app development stuff I mentioned or anything else, uh, that's, you can find everything I do over there. And I'm at Eric Wielander on Twitter, Instagram, pretty much anywhere else. And I have to say, you know, it is because of videos from people like you and others talking through the experience of setting this up and what it takes and how you do it that makes this so much more approachable than I ever thought that it would be. So uh, thank you to you and the community that's doing that. I think that's a big service to folks. Thanks. I agree. Adam, where can people find you? You can find me and uh, everything I'm doing on Twitter at Adam Justice or uh, keep up with my company at ConnectSense.com. All right. And you can find what I'm working on at the Digital Media Zone, the digitalmediazone.com. 
And you can find me on Twitter at Richard Gunther. Uh, I'll warn you, I'm a, a political hack, so I, you're going to get politics there. I watched both conventions in their exhausting entirety. So, um, yeah, just fair warning. All right. Uh, well, where can people find us as a show? We're that we are the smart home show and we are also part of technology.fm, which is a collection of tech focused podcasts, including home tech FM, the food tech show. And of course, my other show home on over at the digital media zone. Smarthome.fm is where you'll find our show notes and details about each episode. And if you want to send us feedback or questions, you can send them to feedback at smarthome.fm. Find us in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and everywhere else that you find your podcasts. And do us a favor, if you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating or a review or tell a friend about the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. 